if you are having a fear of eating, each time you sit down for a meal, you are much more likely to have IBS symptoms after that meal. And then what happens is that you're associating it was the food that caused my symptom and you're taking out the fact that we know for sure in the research that the fear of the food and the anxiety that that fear produced is much more likely causing the symptom than the food itself. Poop, constipation, diarrhea, and everything in between. That is what we're talking about in today's Digest This episode. Welcome back. I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. And today on the show, we have Mary Pardee, and she is an integrative gut health doctor located right here in Southern California, who specializes in a range of quote, incurable digestive disorders, especially in fecal microbiota transplantation, integrative gastroenterology, gut-brain health, hormone issues, and thyroid optimization. Mary is the founder of Modern Med, where patients can consult virtually with naturopath doctors to help solve their health issues with an integrative, holistic, yet modern approach. And she's here today to share her wealth of knowledge with you. But before we get into this episode, I want to shout out user Destiny Ariola 22 She left a podcast rating titled Best Health and Wellness Podcast. If you're looking for a podcast to become more educated on the health and wellness world, here is where you start. Please listen and give it a try as more people need to learn about what we are putting in our bodies and how some products and ingredients can harm our health. I have learned so much about gut health and hormones through her podcast and recommend it to anyone wanting to educate themselves upon the subject. Also try her protein powder in vanilla. It's life-changing. Well, thank you so much, Destiny Ariola 22 I truly do appreciate that wonderful podcast rating and review. And I always love reading and sharing with you guys what other listeners enjoy. And so if you haven't yet, I always appreciate your support. And the best way to do that is by simply rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing it with friends and family. That is the best way to support me and this podcast. And I truly appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Did you know you swallow five to 7% of toothpaste every single time you brush your teeth? That's an entire blob of toothpaste every seven days. And most commercial toothpastes are filled with harsh chemicals, artificial flavors, preservatives, titanium dioxide, and dyes. And I often get asked on my Instagram what toothpaste I recommend. And for a while, I was trying to find one with better for you ingredients and something that actually made my mouth feel great because I've tried so-called non-toxic toothpastes, but I never felt like they were actually getting the job done, if you know what I mean. And they didn't even leave my mouth feeling fresh, but I'm so glad to have stumbled across Bite Toothpaste. These are actually tablets you put in your mouth and bite down on to start your brushing experience. Bite Toothpaste bits are so convenient, you just pop a bit in your mouth, chew it up, and start brushing. It will turn to a paste just like you're used to, but with no plastic tube or messy paste. 
It took a few times for me to get used to it because my entire life I've been using a paste, but now I love them. I also love their mouthwash bits because I can carry these tablets wherever I go and do a quick rinse even in my car. Bite also now has a natural teeth whitening kit. So if you've been looking for a natural toothpaste without the paste, try Bite toothpaste tablets that come in glass jars to help reduce plastic waste and experience what I and so many others are obsessed with. Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout to claim this deal. That's T-R-Y-B-I-T-E dot com slash digest. If you're not subscribed to my newsletters, they come out every Friday and they're called Friday Finds. This is information that only my subscribers get in their inbox. I share stuff like non-toxic air fryers and kitchen appliances, new food finds, product recalls, food news, and food products that aren't even on the market yet. But I've got the scoop. This is not published anywhere else and cannot be found on my blog. So be sure you're in the know and subscribe to my weekly newsletters by going to littlesipper.com slash subscribe and enter your email. That's all you have to do. So go to com forward slash subscribe to get exclusive information on everything food. Thank you so much, Mary, for being on the show today. We are so excited to talk about constipation and pooping and SIBO and I mean the whole gut mind connection because there's a true connection there and I know that you specialize in that and I really want to talk about that because that could be maybe the main issue of so many gut issues that are happening today is it could really be in the mind. But obviously there are are other cases where it's a severe like gut issue as well. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself and tell my followers a little bit about you? Thank you for having me. Um, My name's Dr. Mary Party. So I'm a naturopathic doctor and a functional medicine doctor. I'm based out of Los Angeles, California. And I have a company that specializes in the treatment of GI issues with an integrative perspective. And so we use conventional methods. We also use a lot of natural methods. We talk about diet, exercise, lifestyle. So it's a really holistic treatment plan that we give our patients. Um, And I started all of this based on similar to you. I had gut issues growing up. And that was a real driver that, you know, decided where I was going to specialize. And I was always in the sciences um, and loved research, but it was really my own health issues that was like, I need to figure this out for myself. And so this is what I want to spend my life doing. That's amazing. And I feel like everyone that is struggling with gut issues, they want to talk to someone that's been through it. I mean, it's unfortunate that you have, and I'm so sorry, but obviously you're doing so much better now. But when I was searching for answers, I was going to doctors and they had no idea what I was dealing with. And I just wanted someone to hear me out. I just wanted to be seen and understood. And all these doctors were they had studied it, but they hadn't experienced it. So 
for, you know, for you to offer your services, having gone through it is just that much more valuable. Mm, Yeah. Thank you. I I do think that there's a level of empathy that it's hard to have unless you've experienced something like this yourself. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to talk about, first of all, the psychological aspect of gut health and how does the mind affect gut issues and can we really hold tension in our gut? Mm, Yeah. Okay. I love talking about this because it has an interplay with a lot of GI issues. So we usually talk about the gut brain axis when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, but there's an interplay with the gut brain axis with multiple, multiple systems that we see um, in disorders. And so your, your brain and your gut are intimately connected and the way they're connected is a few different mechanisms. And so one of them is called the enteric nervous system. That's what the nervous system is in your gut itself. Um, your, your gut is kind of special in the fact that it can actually run on its own, um, even if it's disconnected from the brain. But there's still connections, that we call them afferent connections, that do go to the brain to, to tell the brain what's going on in the gut. Is there pressure there? Um, is there, you know, a sensation of pain that's there? Then we also have the autonomic nervous system. And this is the nervous system that we commonly talk about as the rest and digest parasympathetic nervous system. And then the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight, flight, or freeze nervous system. And so that's really how we regulate our nervous system in terms of going into fight or flight, if there's acute stress, and then going back into rest and digest. Um, But the reason we call it rest and digest is because it really has such an influence on our digestive tract. So the vagus nerve is part of that autonomic nervous system and innervates the whole GI tract from the mouth to the lower part of the colon. Um, The other way that we see this connection between the gut and the brain is also the HPA axis. And so this is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis that deals with our stress hormones. Cortisol is produced this way. um, And that has an interplay with how the GI function works as well. And then finally, I like to talk about the microbiome as another interaction between the gut and the brain, because your microbes, the bacteria, fungi, protozoa that are in the intestines, Um, Some of them are able to produce products that then cross over the intestinal wall into circulation, circulate through, and can even make it up to the brain to send signals as to what is going on in the gut and influence things that are going on in the brain. And so we see changes in pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory products based on what's going on in the gut. So it's really, really fascinating. It's amazing. And do you feel that the mind affects the gut or do you feel that the gut affects the mind or is, is that both? It's bi-directional and that's a really important point. A lot of the times people come into my practice because they've heard me talk about the gut brain and they're like, my, the anxiety that I feel is definitely because of my gut. And I like to push back on that and to say that it's both ways. And so there may be an interplay with your gut contributing to anxiety. In my experience, it's a little bit more the other way where anxiety can have more of an effect on the gut, but it is bi-directional. And we have to look at both sides of that in terms of if there's gut issues present and then there also is anxiety and depression, we obviously treat both of those, not just one or the other, hoping that one resolves the other. Yeah, well, I can just also speak from experience that I've felt super toxic. And then after I have a really good bowel movement, like within seconds, my brain feels so much clearer. I feel like I can think. 
And so definitely I know that your gut is holding a lot of toxins. Once you release it, immediately you can think clearer. But also I've experienced that even if I get like a little stomach upset, my brain, just from the history of my gut issues, my brain sometimes goes into like a fear mode and I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to get a flare? And then sometimes I end up getting a flare just because I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And that's really common. We call that the stress, the stress symptom cycle that people can go through. It's very prominent in people with IBS where the stress over, oh boy, my bowel habits are changing or I feel something coming on actually triggers a flare and worsens the symptoms of whether it's constipation, diarrhea, bloating, urgency. Um, And so education about this cycle is so important in treating GI issues. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy approach to really say, if you understand that this can happen, then we can step back and say, okay, if I have a little bit of a symptom, if I don't stress about it and then just kind of proceed as normal, as well as, you know, do things like going for a walk, things that can help with symptom management, but not to say, oh no, it's the end of the world and catastrophize. Then we can see people have much either less drastic flares or avoid flares altogether. Um, So it's a really important point. And when you talked about your symptoms in terms of after you have a bowel movement, you feel so much better. We see that, I'll talk about constipation, but with IBS and constipation, because there there is a differentiation, um, we, we can see that people's quality of life is really affected. So with constipation, somebody that doesn't have IBS-C, but just has constipation, that's not due to IBS, their quality of life is similar to people with psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, so some pretty... Um, some conditions that can affect your your whole life. With IBS specifically, they've associated quality of life with that of end-stage kidney failure in some patients. And, and so for those of you who don't know, kidney failure, you're in dialysis. You have to go get your blood filtered a few times a week. Um, and so sometimes doctors will kind of write things off because they haven't experienced it themselves. And they'll say, you know, nothing's wrong with you. Like it's IBS, it's not going to kill you kind of thing, but it does affect people's quality of life. And that's why we have to pay a lot of attention to it. For sure. I mean, it can literally run your life and you have to always either look for a restroom if you are on the other end of the spectrum of constipation, or you have to always just be prepping your meals. And that is your, your thing all the time, making sure that you're on time for meals for some cases. Like it's just, it does. And the quality of life does go down. And I don't want that for obviously myself, but for everyone that's suffering. I have noticed too that happier people do have better gut health. And, And then of course, depressed people, people with anxiety, their gut health is exacerbated. I'll put it that way from the anxiety or from the depression or the fear that they're experiencing. And that's why some people that go through major life changes, maybe someone passed away close to them or they're moving or a job changes, their gut is like a wreck during that time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting in the research, we actually see that neuroticism is a um, predisposing risk factor for developing IBS. And neuroticism is like having negative attitude towards things or being really worried all of the time. So people that are more prone to being worried have a have a, have a risk factor for IBS just in that personality type that's there, which is really fascinating. 
Yeah, it's amazing. Now, what are the most common issues you see in your practice? For example, gastroparesis, leaky gut, SIBO. What are what are the like top things that you see? The top things we see are IBS, constipation, SIBO would probably be the top three. And then, and those are overlapped, right? Like there's a lot of overlap within those. Um, and then we, we see a lot of inflammatory bowel disease as well in terms of it's, it's a very small percentage of the population that has it. But in terms of um, how many people come to, into our practice with it, it's also something that we treat a lot. Okay. And I feel like IBS is just a blanket statement. Personally, I feel like, oh yeah, you have IBS because doctors can diagnose someone with IBS and say, oh, you have IBS. It's just a little bit of bloating and gas, which is not the case, number one. But also I feel like leaky gut, SIBO, Crohn's, does that technically fall under the category of IBS? Yeah, no, there's a difference. So IBS, um, sometimes we just throw around the term, but the diagnostic criteria for IBS are pretty specific. And so somebody needs to have symptoms for the last three months. So it can't be just this week, something happened. Um, But symptoms had to have started six months ago, which is why it can take a while to diagnose somebody with IBS. Um, And the key feature with IBS is that they have abdominal pain at least one day per week. Um, and so abdominal pain is, is a really common characteristic that has to be there in order to diagnose it. Um, it can come and go, so it's not constant. Typically, it'll have come in flares and then can go away. And then the subsets of IBS is that there's a change in, in either stool frequency or consistency. So either the stools are looser or they're harder um, or you're having more stools or you're having less stools. And so that's, that's what we really mean to be able to diagnose somebody with irritable bowel syndrome. And then, you know, there's a lot of people that have constipation, about 20% of the population have, has constipation, but, but may not necessarily have abdominal pain associated with it. And then we're kind of funneling into them, okay, this is constipation. And now what is the cause of the constipation? Is there an organic cause? Like, do they have thyroid disease? Um, or is this more of an idiopathic, we don't know what is the cause of constipation. And then there's subsets of that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just talk about constipation while we're on the subject. So uh, let's talk about what are are the common causes, first of all. Yeah. And so if we're looking at an organic cause, meaning there's actually something that is causing this, like for instance, diabetes, people can have constipation because we see a slowing of the GI tract. They'll, they can have gastroparesis as well in diabetes. Um, People can have hypothyroidism and they may have constipation. Um, Pregnancy is a common cause of constipation because of the increase in progesterone levels as well. Um, Constipation can just be caused in the luteal phase of a woman's cycle because of the higher levels of progesterone too. So it's really common for women to come in and say, yeah, I'm fine most of the month, but I'll be constipated like seven days before my period. And I tell them, unfortunately, that's normal, but there's things we can do to treat it so you don't have that, of course. Um, There's certain neurological conditions that can cause constipation, things like MS, Parkinson's disease, um, where there's actually an issue with the nerves that are slowing down the GI tract. Um, Anorexia and disordered eating is a common cause of constipation that I see in my practice, whether you know, the person ever had a diagnosis of anorexia or they just exhibit under eating, not eating enough calories. Um, I tell people, if not a, a lot is coming in, not a lot's going to go out either. And so it's so important that we eliminate lack of calories um, or just lack of fiber. If there's like, if someone's on a carnivore diet, they're more likely to be constipated or not having more bowel movements. 
Um, there, celiac disease is another one. We often think of diarrhea, but people with celiac can be constipated and have some bloating as well. And so we want to rule that out too. So when somebody comes to see me, you know, I'm usually doing a full blood work panel to eliminate all of these things. I'm taking a really thorough history to talk about, you know, is there any changes in like movement, you know, to denote some neurological issue. Um, we're looking at family history. Is there a family history of IBD, ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's? Because Crohn's can sometimes have constipation as well. And we're doing blood work. We may be doing a stool analysis, depend on how they present. And we may be doing a SIBO breath test as well. But we want to figure out, like, why does the person have constipation? Sometimes somebody comes in, all their tests are normal. And normal, not just in the sense of conventional medicine, but even in functional medicine, right? They're just, there's nothing wrong with their labs. And then we want to go into, okay, this is more of an idiopathic constipation. Um, so how do we want to treat it and where do they fall in that? Okay. Now, how often should we be pooping? Great question. So conventional medicine will say you don't have to go to the bathroom every day. Every other day is normal, um, even less frequently. I really believe most people feel better when they go to the bathroom every day. Some people, I've had a couple of patients that they're like, I go every other day. I feel totally fine. They're very healthy. I don't see a need to fix that in those people. It's the minority, minority, minority of people, though. Most people are coming to see me because they don't feel well. And so for those people, at least having one bowel movement a day usually makes people feel so much better. They can, they have more energy. Like you said, their mood can change. Like they just feel lighter and sometimes even happier. Um, and so that's really what we're looking at. And then in terms of like the top end, having more than three or four bowel movements a day, especially when we look at the consistency of it. So if you're having really watery stools and that's not normal and can cause issues around the rectum too. Yeah. Well, what about those that do go a lot during the day, but it's it's not watery, but it's like a tiny bit. And they're like, I'm going like six times a day, but it's like so small that it's not a, a proper uh, evacuation. Yeah, which is not uncommon. So I'll usually ask people, how much stool do you pass? Like show me in terms of from your wrist to your elbow, are you passing that much? Or are you passing an inch of stool? And so we want to get an idea for the amount as well. And when some somebody passing a little amounts of stool six times per day, um, it's not necessarily an issue, but usually it's an issue when it comes to lifestyle. And so it becomes very, uh, it can it can take up a lot of the mind space by thinking about going to the bathroom that much, especially if there's urgency there where they're running to the bathroom and just having a little bit come out or they're only having little bits come out because they're straining and not more will come out. So they feel like it's a not full, like a, a lack of a full void or bowel movement. So almost always there's other characteristics when people come in and they're like going to the bathroom multiple times per day with small bowel movements. Mm -hmm. Now, when should one see a doctor for constipation? Because obviously, if you're constipated just one time, that doesn't really say that you have a constipation issue. Maybe it was just whatever, right? You didn't drink enough water that day or something. Um, so when should one actually seek out help? Yeah, so it's important that you're just looking at, like you said, are you drinking enough water? Are you eating well? And, and taking care of those foundationals. But when somebody experiences weight loss with constipation, when somebody experiences blood in the stool, when somebody is older. So, you know, for instance, an 80-year-old woman that comes in with acute constipation, I'm going to be much more concerned about than a 30-year-old um, due to the risk of colon cancer being the cause. 
Um, if you have a fever, if there's any other acute illness symptoms, that's going to be important as well. Um, so those are, those are like the big ones we want to think about with going to see a doctor, but if it's not getting better with just restoring the normal things in your diet, including, you know, eating enough fiber in the diet, water, um, exercise, then you want to eventually go see a doctor because we want to make sure we rule out the other things that it could, could be. Mm -hmm. So let's just say if someone is going three times a week, would that be a good case to, to seek out some help? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If it's not just one week, but it's been several weeks of that, absolutely. Um, They they likely are uncomfortable. We also want to make sure there's not an obstruction, right? Like we want to make sure that something else isn't causing this issue because there are things that um, can be life-threatening that can cause constipation. Most of the time, especially in younger people, um, most of the time it is either idiopathic or it's IBS or it's something that's very benign. Mm -hmm. Now you did mention eating enough fiber, but I know for a lot of people with gut issues and IBS, myself included, if I eat too much fiber, it it backfires on me. So I tend personally to to stick to a lower fiber diet, but I make sure I get in good healthy oils to lubricate, you know, the um, digestive system. So what would you say in those cases for those that are like, oh my gosh, I just can't even eat like lettuce or, you know, anything like that. It's just going to wreck me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's common too. So fiber, there's a sweet spot for most people. Um, and, and some people it's really on the low side and other people, they're just like trying to figure out their tolerance to it where it helps when there is some, but not too much. Um, also we want to make sure we're looking at, is there small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or if intestinal methanogen overgrowth in that case, because sometimes that's the issue that's making it so people can't tolerate fiber. And so we want to then go in ahead and treat that so that they can tolerate it. Sometimes that's not the case. And it's just that people aren't, they do better on a lower fiber diet. Um, And so for them, we're just figuring out what is your tolerance there, but I want to make sure I'm ruling out that, that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth first. Um, and yeah, we can sometimes change the type of fiber. So some people, they won't do well on um, one type of fiber, but they'll do really well on psyllium husk, or they'll do well on sun fiber, but they won't do well on psyllium husk. And so sometimes it's the type of fiber that we're looking at. With people that are more prone to gas and bloating, I'm usually telling them to increase soluble fiber sources first that are low fermentable fiber sources. And so an example of that would be things like sweet potatoes um, can be easier for people that are more, more tend towards bloating and gas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some other examples? Yeah. So if people are more towards constipation, kiwi is one of my favorite foods for those people that has soluble fiber in it. It really helps just having normal bowel movements for people that are more constipation prone. Um, With the skin, right? Yeah. With the skin. Yeah. If people don't tolerate it, it's still beneficial without the skin. Um, But I eat the whole thing just like an apple. Um, The other thing you can look at are things like carrots as well. Um, Making sure that you're cooking your foods can be better for people that are more iffy on the fiber. So if they get more bloated than just having well-cooked vegetables, I'll even have people puree their vegetables instead of having them um, more crunchy or raw. That can be really nice on the digestive system as well. Awesome. And then um, I would love to add just avocados. Love that. Yeah. Avocados are great. Super high. And I believe both types of fiber. 
Yep, you'll have both in avocados. You also have the fat in avocado, which is nice for constipation. Um, they are more fermentable. So people that may have SIBO or intestinal methanogen overgrowth, they may react to avocado. Um, but if not, it's a wonderful source. Okay, good to know. And then you did mention psyllium husk. So what is your take on those types of products like Metamucil and psyllium husk and things like that? Because for a lot of people myself included, psyllium husk, again, it actually can constipate me. Yeah. So there's a few factors there. Um, one is we treat the person. We don't treat just the condition, right? So somebody comes in they're like, I can't do psyllium husk. We're not going to use it. There's a million other things we can start to use with those people. And so everybody is different. And you learn that as a clinician where you think, okay, this, this worked for me. So it's going to work for everybody else. And it's just not the case. Um, you also want to make sure you're drinking enough water with it. So eight ounces or more of water with a tablespoon of psyllium husk is essential or else it can cause issues. Um, but Psyllium husk I've seen work wonders for some people where it's like life-changing, right? And so that's amazing. And then you have people where it, it makes it worse or it doesn't work. And so some of it's trial and error and just being flexible to, to change. If you suffer from headaches, you're not alone. One in every six people suffer and more than 8 million Americans visit their doctor for headache-related issues each year, 75% of which are women. Of course, women go through more hormonal changes each month and their moods fluctuate, which can cause migraines to the point of many unable to even function, let alone work or be the mother or wife they typically are on a daily basis. We need help. But the side effects from NSAIDs like Advil or other over-the-counter anti-inflammatories sometimes aren't worth it. But did you know that CBD has been shown time and time again, study after study, to be one of the best natural anti-inflammatories available? and no prescription is required. Ned is a brand I've been personally consuming for over two years, and one of their newer products is their Brain Blend. It not only contains full-spectrum hemp, but also botanicals to help support brain function and clarity, such as MCT, ginkgo, bacopa, Siberian ginseng, lion's mane, and lemon essential oil. I took this blend when I had a major headache and within 30 minutes, it was gone. No joke. So if you need a natural relief from headaches or just want more clarity in your brain to think and focus, I highly recommend Ned's Brain Blend. Become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code DIGEST. Go to helloned.com slash digest or enter code digest at checkout to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering my listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Again, what I love about you is that you work with people all as an individual. You don't just make some blanket prescription or uh, protocol and say, okay, this is what you need to do, which I feel like a lot of conventional practitioners sometimes just do that and say, no, you just, you're just not eating enough fiber and just up it more or whatever, you know, and that's just not the case. Yeah, absolutely. We have to realize that each person is going to respond differently. Um, otherwise, we're really going on like 
almost like an ego drive, right? Where it must be the case because it was in the research book. And even though they say they feel worse, we're going to keep going down that um, path. And that's just not the way to do it. Yeah. Well, I I do want to go back to the whole period constipation. So for those that do get constipated just like a week out of the month, what advice can you give those women? Yeah. And so what I would say is start to track your cycle and start to notice when do you feel constipated because we want to start treating it a few days before that. We don't want to wait till you're already constipated because things are already changing a couple days before. So track your cycle, figure out when that's happening. And then like two days before each month, I want you to then start to increase fiber in your diet. Things like kiwi specifically would be great. Papaya is a great source, flax seeds, chia seeds, Um, All of those can be really helpful. And then also start taking some magnesium can be a really easy fix. And so it depends how hard your stools get for women that their stools will get like a type one or type two on the Bristol stool chart, which um, what that looks like is rabbit pellets or rabbit pellets kind of clumped together, but the stools are really hard. Then I would suggest taking a magnesium oxide that's going to pull the most amount of water into the intestines and act like an osmotic laxative to help soften the stool so that it's more likely to pass. Um, and then also just making it so your your foods are more cooked and focusing on getting some exercise, even though you might be starting to get tired with more PMS symptoms there, but just walking Walking on the treadmill first thing in the morning is one of my favorites for constipation. Um, Taking a walk around the neighborhood, getting 10,000 steps per day can be all really helpful as well. You're going to end up finding your dose for these things. And so some women that do do well with psyllium husk, maybe one tablespoon a day is the trick. Some people that don't do well with it, maybe they need uh, three capsules of magnesium oxide and one woman might need one capsule, right? One woman might need four. So we, we call that titrating to bowel tolerance where when you use magnesium as an osmotic laxative, you want to increase it until you're having every, a bowel movement every day. But if your stools are becoming loose or like watery, then you want to reduce it until the stool is formed again. So you can increase and decrease based on what the stool consistency and frequency is. Yeah. And I do want to point out there are several types of magnesium. And so you want to make sure that you're you're getting, you know, the specific type and one type of magnesium may not work and, and another type might. Yeah. Yeah. So with really hard stools, I start with a magnesium oxide because it's one of the strongest osmotic glasses. It pulls as much water into the intestines. Um, for women that their stools don't get hard, they just have less frequent stools, then I would be more prone to do like a magnesium glycinate where you're actually absorbing some of the magnesium and then only a little bit of the water is getting pulled into the intestines and again increasing or decreasing the dose as needed. Yeah. And you mentioned you mentioned the Bristol stool chart. So what should the average bowel movement look like? Yeah. And it's really important to note that your bowel movements will fluctuate and that is normal. So, you know, the we, we say like type four on the Bristol stool chart is the ideal and that that looks like a snake. It doesn't have a ton of ridges or cracks in it because it's not super hard. It's soft, but it's not so soft that it dissolves in the water. So it's a well-formed, softer stool that looks like a snake shape. Um, You can go to a type three as well. That's totally normal. It's a little bit harder with some ridges on it. Type five, it kind of falls into pieces, but it's still formed pieces, but it's a little bit softer. 
fluctuating between all of those is totally normal. It's when we go into like the type one and type two, which are more constipation predominant. Those are going to be the harder rabbit pellet type stools or the like the very watery stools, type six, type seven, where it's looking like either like oatmeal that doesn't have any shape to it or complete water. Um, having one day of any of these totally normal, right? Like you said before, when we started, maybe you just didn't drink enough water that day and your stools are hard. Um, so we want to kind of stay around the type three to type five. Mm -hmm. And then you did also mention too, um, regarding the nerves and sometimes a nerve can be pinched and that can cause bowel obstruction or that can just cause constipation. Again, I've experienced that where I can go to a chiropractor, get chiropractic care and get back in alignment. Then my nerve is unpinched and then everything else, including my bowels is just working as it should. Amazing. Yeah. I don't have a ton of experience with chiropractic, but there can definitely be nerve issues in the pudendal nerves and the pelvic floor muscles specifically. So there's defecation disorders that involve the pelvic floor muscles and therefore like the nerves that are associated with those muscles in relaxing certain muscles around the rectum to allow for a full bowel movement as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what about for those that are on the other end of the spectrum of constipation and they're just going all the time, they need to always be by a restroom. What advice and what would you do for a patient like that? Yeah. So when we look at diarrhea, we want to, number one, find out the cause. We're always doing stool studies for diarrhea. We want to make sure we've ruled out a parasite or an infection that could be causing frequent stools. Um, And then on the other side, we also have hyperthyroidism. So thyroid that's over-functioning can produce diarrhea as well. Um, There's a bunch of conditions like inflammatory bowel disease usually presents with diarrhea. Celiac can present with diarrhea. So we want to make sure we ruled everything out, SIBO, all of that. Um, And then if they come back normal and they have abdominal pain, then we're thinking this is more of an IBSD where they have irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea. And when that's the case, we're really looking at a few things, but how can we slow down the GI tract? Peppermint oil is one of my favorite ways it's an antispasmodic. So if you have cramps and abdominal pain, it can help as well, but it also can help slow down the GI tract a little bit. Um, we also use soluble fibers in this case too, because they can help bulk the stool, absorb water that's there um, to have a more formed bowel movement as well. Um, and then we also want to be targeting stress. So Usually stress is going to be a component of IBSD where there's like a fear of where's the nearest bathroom or what if I have urgency when I go out to eat or what if I can't find a bathroom and I have anxiety. So we want to go through all the thought processes and behaviors that have been associated with the condition because actually breaking those thought patterns can help improve the symptom of diarrhea itself. It's really interesting. Um, And we want to see like, is there any underlying anxiety that's separate from the condition and does treating that actually improve the digestive function as well? It's actually oversimplification, of course, because we also will use medications when we need to. Um, There's like a whole slew of things. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, so many things that you could or could not do. Speaking of the the gut microbiome, and I want to touch a little bit on FMT, if you don't mind. And for those that don't know, it's a fecal microbiota transplantation. And mm-hmm. why don't you share what that actually is for those that don't know? And then you, you do specialize that in that, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll talk about what my role in the FMT world is, but FMT... 
um, fecal microbiota transplantation is you take the stool from a healthy donor and we can talk about that, but there's a whole criteria of what makes a healthy stool donor. And you implant it usually rectally, either through an enema or a colonoscopy. You can also do capsules now that are enteric coated. Um, and you implant it into a donor who needs it for some reason. And so the most common things, the, mo the only FDA approved thing right now is a Clostridium difficile infection, C. diff. And that's an infection that causes a pseudomembranous colitis, can be life-threatening, especially in the elderly. And FMT has a really high cure rate for C. diff infections, over 90%. Uh, it actually looks better than the medications that we use, vancomycin, fidixomycin, for the treatment of C. diff. And not only that, but it's really getting to the root cause of C. diff. C. diff is usually caused by antibiotic courses. So you're kind of like wiping out the microbiome and it leads to this overgrowth of C. diff, which causes the issue in the first place. So reseeding the microbiome makes a whole lot of sense to me in terms of the treatment for it. Um, so that's one thing. And there's actually an FDA approved FMT drug that's going on the market, which is going to be prescribable by physicians for the treatment of C. diff. And so we're in, in a really interesting place with FMT because that should be coming to the market um, hopefully relatively soon so that it's more widespread. You don't have to go find a donor or go to a donor stool bank, but it'll be something that's easily prescribable. Um, the, there is, however, research for things that are not FDA cleared yet for for. FMT. And one of those is inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And the quality of life with people with IBD can be quite low depending on the severity of the disease itself. So usually IBD presents with diarrhea, bloody stools, um, anemia, fatigue, all of these things that can be really um, detrimental to somebody's quality of life and also physical health too. We see an increased risk for um, colon cancer in IBD. And so the, the research with FMT with IBD is quite good. It's actually similar to that of a biologic agent um, and doesn't have the necessary side effects of the biological agents, which is immune suppression and increasing the risk for cancer as well. And so what I do in my practice right now is I, I work as a safety guard. So the analogy I like to use is that instead of telling kids not to have sex, teenagers not to have sex, we give them condoms and sex education. And similarly with FMT, FMT, you can't get it in the United States under the FDA because it's not approved. So people are doing it at home by themselves without any physician guidance, without screening their donor. And the risk for transmitting diseases is a a definite risk. And so my role in the care is to help people screen their donors. So if they're already going to do it, they do it in a healthy way where there's the least risk for transmitting diseases from one person to the other. And so that's what I do right now is that people with inflammatory bowel disease um, and possibly some other things, IBD is the main one that we actually have research for though is I help them screen their donor, do stool studies, blood work on them, and, and give them some pointers so that they have a lower risk for infection. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a huge risk factor there. And of course, I'm assuming anyone would want to try all other avenues before opting for this because there there is a risk for sure, but there's also been 
definite instances where people's lives have been changed through it. So, you know, I, I know that they do this with animals. Like if you have a sick cow on the farm, the the farmer will just take the the poop out of the healthy cow and put it in the sick cow. And all of a sudden the, the sick cow is now fine. Yeah. Veterinary medicine is really interesting. It's usually a little bit more advanced in some ways because they're more experimental. Um, but we also see something called, I believe it's called chorophagia. I might be butchering that a little bit, but animals will eat each other's poop. You see that, right? Like dogs will eat each other's poop. And one thing we're wondering is, is that some way to actually help their microbiome? And I don't know the answer to this, but it's just fascinating that we do see it in other animals where there's this consumption of, of stool that may be affecting their own microbiome. Yeah, that is really interesting because animals do have a natural just instinct to do things. But um, this is this is not to go and and consume other people's <laughs> passings here. But um, but yeah. So what about um, diet protocol here? Now, do do you typically just work with um, treating the issue, or do do you also give this um, any patient a diet plan at the beginning before? going to the extremes here. Yeah, absolutely. So diet advice is almost always given to people. A lot of the times with the population that sees me, it's actually expanding their diet because they come in and they're like, I'm eating six foods or else I get bloated. Um, or I've restricted my, my diet to this, this, and this. Otherwise, I have GI symptoms. And so some cases, I'm actually expanding their diet as their treatment. In other cases, it's saying, you know, if somebody with IBD comes in, you know, we may be putting them on a specific carbohydrate diet, or we may be putting somebody on a low FODMAP diet for a specific period of time. Um, and so it really depends on what they're coming in with, what, how we're going to treat them. Also really depends on their history and their personality type and their risk for over-restricting or orthorexia. And, and that just, it, you know, sometimes the, the feel that I have in, in the appointment, but um, anybody with a history of disordered eating or eating disorders, I'm going to be much more hesitant um, slash really would not put them on a restrictive diet in the fear of re-triggering that um, eating disorder or fears of food that can come up. Sure. Yeah. And for our, a lot of people, like you had mentioned, a, a lot are scared to branch out because they have their quote, six safe foods. And they're just like, I, I don't want to be in pain. This is all I eat. And I'm scared. Um, not, not to, you know, they're not scared to eat the, the food, but they're scared of the effects from eating the food. And what would you do with that person? And how would you approach that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so common. It's so, so common, Bethany. And we, we approach it in a few different ways. But if somebody comes to me, let's just say with, um, and they have an IBS diagnosis. So in IBS, we know that it's less likely the food that's causing an issue and more likely that the stress symptom cycle that we talked about, as well as, of course, like, you know, lack of fiber or water or any of the lifestyle factors that are there. But we want to educate people about what is causing their symptom in the first place. And if it's not the food, then what is it? They want to know what it is. And once they know what it is, they're more likely to put some of the foods back in. And so with IBS, we do know that fermentable foods, um, high FODMAP foods can exacerbate symptoms, but we don't have a ton of research to say that all of these other foods are causing symptoms. So it's 
very frequently people come to me and they're not just on a low FODMAP diet. They've also taken out, um, you know, 12 or 15 other foods that they're restricting. And so I want to empower them that we don't have any research that those foods are causing your symptoms. So let's put them back in and just focus on the things that we do now. Because what's happening is if, if you are having a fear of eating each time you sit down for a meal, you are much more likely to have IBS symptoms after that meal. And then what happens is that you're associating it was the food that caused my symptom and you're taking out the fact that we know for sure in the research that the fear of the food and the anxiety that that fear produced is much more likely causing the symptom than the food itself. And I'm always advocating a healthy diet, right? I'm never saying eat whatever you want, McDonald's, this, that. Um, so we're eating like a whole foods diet that's rich in protein and veggies and all that stuff. Um, but we want to take away that, that fear of food that we have. So I'm of, often referring people to psychologists that specialize in disordered eating or the relationship around food to help people go through cognitive behavioral therapy approaches to saying, I need to just expose myself to these foods and then do the things that we know could be causing the symptoms. Most people are just taking the food out and they're not doing the things that we know are exacerbating the symptoms. Yeah, the mind can truly, truly affect the gut like we talked about earlier. And it's right, it's like a cycle because you get so fearful of, of branching out of your safe foods that now your your body is in a fight and flight mode because you're nervous and then you eat it. And then like you said, then you associate the, uh, the pain from the food, which really it was just because of your mind afraid to eat the food that triggered it. And it's just this horrible circle. Yeah, it's the whole cycle. Yeah, so we, we're usually referring people for, it's called GI-CBT. It's gastrointestinal cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, there's a few programs out there now for IBS specifically that can help lead people through, like, here's the research. Like, if you have bloating or abdominal pain, this is actually what's causing it in your body. And it can help people become less fearful of food and help them reintroduce food and to reduce their overall symptoms as well. Amazing. Now let's just say someone is not like that. And they're like, no, I, I, I trust me. It's not my mind. I have a serious issue. I have like a parasites or I just, something's happening where they do have gastroparesis or SIBO or something. Right. So how do they test for that? Where, how, all that? Yeah. So if somebody meets the criteria that we're like, okay, gastroparesis is, is likely here, you know, they have nausea, vomiting, um, feeling of fullness, then we'll, we'll refer them out for a gastric emptying study and we can see, do they have it or not? If it comes back negative, then we say, you don't have that. We need to move on and, and treat the things that we know are there. Or if somebody comes in with bloating, abdominal pain, loose stools, we're doing a parasite test on them. So we're going to know if somebody has something organic because we're doing testing in the beginning, which I think is so important because you need the peace of mind to move forward with treatment, um, not just you know crossing your fingers and saying, I hope that this is it kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's good to rule all that stuff out and then say, okay, well, look, we did all these tests. You don't have this. So let's let's move forward and, and try other approaches. And that's what I love about modern med is that people can go there, they can get tested, they can get help. And um, you, you consult and your doctors consult globally, correct? Uh, uh, we don't really consult globally. So sometimes we can act as a health consultant in people's cases where 
Um, we can talk to them about, about their health issues, but we can't diagnose or treat um, or order lab work with people that are outside of the states that we're licensed in. So right now I have my California and Colorado license. So that's the majority of the people that I'm seeing. There are some people in rural areas that they don't have access to to doctors in their area, in which case they can either fly in to establish care with us once in California, and then I can continue to treat them afterwards. Um, or I act as that health consultant to say, okay, ask your GI to do these tests or, you know, talk to your primary care about ruling out this and that. Okay. And now let's talk about treatments here because you do, as mentioned, you have an integrative approach, which sometimes you do use antibiotics and sometimes you do more of the holistic approach. So when do you decide to use antibiotics? Yeah, so if somebody comes in with um, symptoms suggestive of SIBO, we do a lactulose breath test on them. That's a kit we can mail to people's houses. And if they come back with hydrogen or methane or hydrogen sulfide predominant small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or intestinal methanogen overgrowth, then we're talking about treatment options. And there's two treatment options that we have there where people can either use the antibiotics, which are typically zyfaxin, neomycin, or just zyfaxin, depending on which gas is elevated. Um, and we almost, we always are also using herbs when we do that treatment. So it's not just antibiotics that we'll use because SIBO can be really pesky. And we found that using the herbs in, in addition to the antibiotics increases um, the chances that people will fully resolve and, um, but option number two is just using the herbs. And if we do option number two, we don't use the antibiotics and we're doing a longer course of the herbs. John Hopkins actually came out with a study that's, that said using herbs and, or antibiotics for the treatment of SIBOs is somewhat similar. So one was not statistically more effective than the other, which is great news. Um, in my clinical practice, what I've seen is that people get better sooner with the antibiotics if we use those because they're stronger. And so I just give people the option and I tell them, you know, if you want to feel better sooner, then this is what I would recommend. If you are good doing a longer course of treatment, then we can use the herbs and it's a personal decision. Yeah. Well, that's great that you give that person the option again, because I feel like so many doctors today really don't give the patient the option and say, no, just take this pill and that's all I can do for you. Bye. See you later. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it should be an informed consent. They should know um, what their options are. And then sometimes we'll use a low FODMAP diet with those people too. And again, de dependent on whether they have a fear of food already or history of disordered eating. Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing, Mary. And um, before we go, pimp yourself out. Where can people find you? What's your social media? All that good stuff. Awesome. Yeah. And I was also, I was listening to one of your other podcasts, Dr. Chung's which was on hemorrhoids. And it's such oh, a good, yeah. good um, connection with what we're talking about here. Because if you have diarrhea or constipation, the chances of hemorrhoids are much higher. So make sure to go back and listen to that episode too. I think it's they, they complement each other really well. Well, good. I'm so glad you listened to that. We'll put that episode in today's show notes as well so you can reference back. Yeah, it was great. Um, my website is modernmed.com. There's no E in modern, M-O-D-R-N-M-E-D.com. And I have two Instagrams. One of them is at modernmed and then the other one's at dr.maryparty, um, where I give away a ton of free educational content around GI, IBS, constipation, gastroparesis, all the GI issues as well. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I cannot wait for everyone to listen to this episode. Thanks again. Thank you, Bethany. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McCone. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. If you're looking to take back your health, it's time for you to listen to the Real Foodology podcast. From the producer of Digest This comes one of Apple Podcasts' top 10 nutrition shows, hosted by integrative nutritionist and real food activist Courtney Swan. The Real Foodology podcast is on a mission to change the way we eat. Courtney interviews doctors, food experts, health professionals, and nutrition pioneers to bring you the best info so you can thrive. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of how impactful our food choices are. But it's never too late to start on the path of better health choices. You'd be so surprised how resilient our bodies are when we start taking care of them. Yes, it's overwhelming, but that's why Courtney's here to help. She breaks it down for you and makes the information more accessible so that you can make more informed decisions in the grocery aisle or restaurant. Listen to the Real Foodology podcast today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resonant Media.